Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are here today to attack Allison Chain's album, Dirt, track by track. As I mentioned in our last episode, we are here on what would be Lane Staley's 55th birthday, what would be the 32nd anniversary of Facelift, and today we are talking about Dirt, which turns 30 this month. Guys, this album is awesome and i can't wait to jump into it i'm here with my good buddy jason colvin what's up how's it going and drug free (laughs) we did an intervention (laughs) he's okay now (laughs) and we have james buckley back from louisiana to help us again with this amazing album guys remember the first time you heard this very much picked up the cd i swear it was the day it was released wow i could not wait to get into my old toyota tercel out in the parking lot and slide that cd in and i just sat there for a second before i even drove away as soon as i heard that first song come crashing in i knew that i was going to love this album man 30 years later i have not been proved wrong it is such a fantastic album i did not get it when it came out i was a late adopter i might have even had sap before i had this album but i was happy to come back and dive into the awesomeness that is this album and then of course i absolutely loved 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 jar of flies maybe my favorite of all of them amazing like we mentioned yesterday we'd already gotten a sneak preview of dirt from wood off the single soundtrack i had some pavlovian salivation going on as soon as that baby was released i was ready to go so we are here on what would have been Lane Staley's 55th birthday. From a purely number standpoint, it's the most successful album Alice in Chains ever had. Since That's right. Released. August 9th, it just rolled the 5 million copy mark. August 9th of this year, of yeah, 2022. Yes. Wow. How about that? Congratulations, guys. And once again, it was produced by Dave Jordan. They had a winning thing going with the guy. Every track except Wood, which is the same one they had for the single soundtrack. Yeah, you had mentioned that he was not an inexperienced guy. He'd done quite a few different bands before this. He really started to hit it big with Jane's Addiction and Facelift. Those were his ones to kind of emerge after he'd been doing it for literally 15 years. I think he started in the 70s or something. One of the guys that he did an album, did engineering for, was Herbie Hancock. He did Future Shock, which has Rocket on it. He was the engineer for that album, which I I think is an achievement. I'm pretty impressed. Now, Bill Lasley, the bass player, is the guy who's really responsible for Rocket. He had to convince Herbie Hancock to do the kind of the the DJ stuff. Bill Lasley, check him out. Awesome bass player. Just throw that in there. He got turned on to Bill Lasley by, again, a friend of Kevin Davis's named Ron Stevenson. He was talking to me just this past week about how awesome Bill Lasley was and how he's responsible for Herbie Hancock's Rocket. Fantastic. Among others. How about that? Hey, before we get too deep in the production of this album. Yeah. Let's talk about the front cover of this album. So the cover art features a woman who's naked and buried in the crack of the sand in the desert. That woman's name is Mariah O'Brien, although there was a urban legend that that was actually Demery Perot. And here's the funny thing about it. I never realized that model was naked until it was blurred out on YouTube when I was trying to. (laughs) I'm like, why is this giant black box right there? So then I went back and looked at like. Oh, well, there you go. Well, she's covered in dirt. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so the cover was photographed by Rocky Schneck, and Rocky, Rocky was Schneck. <laughs> Schneck. 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 Okay. Schneck. Rocky Schneck. The album was photographed by Rocky Schneck, who also created <laughs> the images. He went to his studio. Those mountains in the background are miniatures that he created. But the band was the one who said, we want a woman buried in the desert. We don't care if she's alive or dead. He went and found some pictures to show to them of different women. And one of the women that he showed, as you mentioned, was Mariah O'Brien. But this was not Mariah O'Brien's first album cover. I know you shared that with us this week, and we were very blessed by the front <laughs> cover of Bitch School by, by Spinal, Spinal Tap. Tap. Same she year. She was not a 10, she was an 11. <laughs> That's right. She is looking good and completely different. Looks completely different than she does on the dirt cover. But uh, she was obviously a model, had been on a couple of album covers, uh, was in that same year, was in a movie called Gas, Food and Lodging. Haven't heard of that one. But she was also in Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers in 1995, a little bit later. Since then, she has gone on to become an interior designer. Well, good for her. I guess what happened when they had her come in, they had her put a wig on, then did her makeup, and then they put her in the crack that Rocky Schneck had built in the sand of his desert, and then they plastered her in, and then they commenced to take pictures of her for eight hours. And she was like, guys, I got to pee. I got to pee. And they're like, oh, we'll just slide a diaper on it. She's like, I am not going to pee on the floor. Yeah, really. And so once they were finally done with her, we're done. She jumps out of that plaster. Like it's, she jumps out so fast. It rips her wig off as she's running to the toilet. Well, they take some pictures of the wig and they use that on their later compilation album. Nice. I do know that there were some hard feelings with Demery Perot on that model being used for that album cover because it looked so similar to her, but wasn't her. Anyway, she really got her feelings hurt. If you're going to use somebody that looks like me, why didn't you just ask me? All right. So on April 27th, 1992, they started work in the studio on Dirt. On April 29th, 1992, four cops in L.A. were acquitted for beating Rodney King. Black smoke pouring into the sky all over town. That's what Los Angeles looks like this morning. That means that they started this album at almost the exact time as the L.A. riots. They were watching it on TV when the verdict was announced. Jerry Cantrell was out buying beer at the moment that it was announced. And while he's buying beer, they attack the liquor store he's at and start rampaging and rioting and looting in the liquor store. Yeah. He was also driving his Dodge pickup. His Dodge pickup that he bought with his facelift money. His Oklahoma pickup. <laughs> And he watched somebody, he was stuck in traffic, watched somebody pulled out of their car and got beat up. And he thought, man, this is really a bad deal. we got to get out of here. So Lane, of course, has relapsed at this time. Uh -huh. During the L.A. riots, before they left town, he's sneaking away into downtown L.A. to buy drugs oh. during the riots. Oh, what? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He had a problem. One of the engineers, his name was Byron Kalstrom. He said, a city of fire is the perfect backdrop for this album. The, the band had clearly taken a different, a slightly darker perspective with the, all the songs on this album. I read a quote from Jordans who said that, I believe that on Facelift, Lane was portraying a dark world from the outside looking in. It's only later that they were right inside looking out. 
And he went on to say something had happened to that family. It was drugs. That was obvious. Lane started recording a week after getting out of rehab. They suddenly seemed like they were living the darkness they were only exploring earlier on. That's what they wanted, but you have to be careful what you wish for. Man. Fantastic quote. Yeah, the second half of this album, side two of the tape, if you had the tape, it is Lane Staley's story about drug addiction. And it starts off like any drug addict starts off where you are enjoying the high and loving the moment. And then it slowly, as each song, like those five songs before Wood, as it tracks down, it is the descent into the depths of despair. It's tragic that he could see what comes when you do this sort of thing and still decided to go that way anyway. So you mentioned Dave Jordan. I will say Dave got the album's guitar tone on this one as well. We mentioned that he was he he heard Bon Jovi and so he got the wah for Man in the Box. He bought the voice box, the $100 voice box. But the awesome guitar that you hear on this one is a bonger fish preamp that does the low end, a bonger ecstasy for the mid frequencies and a Rockman headphone amp for the high frequencies. So that is how you get this awesome sound of Jerry Cantrell's guitar. Now, I'm really going to rabbit hole this, and I'm sorry for doing this, but I noticed that there was a guy who was an engineer on this one named Ulrich Wild. Now, this was Ulrich Wild's first job as an engineer on a professionally made studio album. Just a year after that, he would be involved in the debut album of a rapper we all know and love named Snoop Dogg called Doggy Style. (laughs) And that same year, he would pair up with the guys from Green Jelly, which was previously Green Jello, and do a cover version of a Gary Glitter song called I'm the Leader of the Gang, I Am. And who did they bring in to sing for them? None other than Hulk Hogan himself. Do you want to be in my gang, my gang, my gang? Want to be in my gang? <laughs> yeah, brother. So oh my God. I just had to mention Ulrich Wild. This was his first engineering job on a studio album. And a year later, he's already pairing up with the Hulkster. Oh, and from, Snoop a, Dogg. Yeah. from a <laughs> sonic perspective, this album sounds amazing. The production, the guitar tone is so sick. It is so great. The drums sound huge. And Lane, I mean, I don't know how what percentage of the gross national product of Columbia he was doing at this time, but he was still, his voice was amazing. And I really think was, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned Carlstrom said that some of the things Lane sang, Lane liked to go away in a little alcove, a little booth where nobody could see him sing. Said some of the things he did with his voice, you couldn't even do with effects. You couldn't duplicate it. He couldn't understand how Lane pulled off some of these vocal tricks. Well, are we ready to dive in? Let's do it, man. Enough talking. Let's get to some music. Here we go. First song on the album, right out of the gate, is a song called Them Bones. I'm over here. I'm laughing because I'm watching James on the Zoom video drumming along with this, and I can see him thinking because this is (laughs) this song is in freaking seven eight time. What the heck kind of 
out of the gate rock heavy metal song do you do seven eight time for the verse of the song and then switch into four four time for the chorus it's insane and it's awesome oh it's an amazing riff i I don't think jerry Cantrell was trying to go like rush get all proggy with the time signatures (laughs) but that seven eight time signature gives the song such an uneven jerky feel it's a blast to play i tell you we used to play it and you mess yourself up if you count it you just have to feel internalize that riff because i'm sitting there going one two three four five six seven eight oh no oh it's so good and the eye seems to come in at that point that it jumps ahead like when you when you're expecting it to hit eight and there is no eight it just goes from seven to one you're like ah ah (laughs) you're jumping through it i love it that so ah good. was improved by Lane at the last moment when they were getting ready to lay down the track. Oh, wow. And he was just sitting there and he's like, you know, there was that squeal of the guitar and he jumped in with the ah. It's like you're getting shocked with the cattle prod. Yeah. This was the second single released September 8th, 1992. This reached number 24 in the Modern Rocks charts. And it is freaking awesome right out of the gate. I feel so It's dark. I mean, the lyrics obviously deal with mortality. Jerry Cantrell saying we're all just getting it up a pile of those bones, but it rocks so hard you don't even think about that. Such a great way to kick off the album. Hey, you know who else loves this song? Beavis and Butthead love this song. (laughs) Yes! Whoa. (laughs) Trials of life. Why do you think they call them animals? (laughs) I remember that. Oh my god! <laughs> and, and and I will quote: "This is the coolest video I've ever seen in my life." <laughs> we need to talk about the video. So they're in that cave, yep. and they keep showing these weird images of like scorpions killing insects and stuff like that. Yeah, it's about death. It's about dying. It's about death. I mean, this is about the hey, you're gonna you're gonna be dead someday, and so am I. We're all gonna end up as a pile of them bones. Cantrell said this is pretty cut and dry. It's a little bit sarcastic, but it's pretty much about dealing with your mortality and life. Everybody's going to die someday. Instead of being afraid of it, that's the way it is. So enjoy the time you've got. Just right off the bat, it's obvious that musically these guys had grown. I mean, to start off with a riff like that, this was musically a step removed from the guys who recorded Facelift. You know, for a guy like me, the opening part of the song is real heavy. Then it sort of lets you off the mat with the chorus. and It's real sweet. Just flows really well. I really, really enjoy this song. It's great. The video was directed again by Rocky Schneck, the guy who did the album cover. Rocky Schneck did the album cover. He directed this video. He had previously done We Die Young. All of those videos are available on Music Bank the Videos. This song is just such a jarring way to start off the album, but it hooks you. It just hooks you right in. The first lyrics of the song, some say we're born into the grave. This is no fluffy album. We're here to kick some butt. Love it. Yep. Song number two on the album is called Damn That River. So we got another butt kicker right out of the gate. Two for two. This song is kicking my bootay <laughs> all the way down the road i love it oh, 
This is another one that Jerry Cantrell wrote. This this album, Jerry shared some writing credits with Lane Staley for the first time. He had written almost everything on Facelift, and this one, Staley does much of the second part of the album. But this one is all Cantrell, and it was inspired by a fight that he had with Sean Kinney in which Kinney broke a coffee table over his head. <laughs> I don't even know how that's possible, but bad gum, why not write a song about it? Smashed a coffee table over his head. His head was bleeding, and that's where they came up with the term, damn that river. <laughs> wow. And this is this is them more in their traditional hard rock heavy metal mode, but it's such an awesome song. And it just comes charging out, that steady chugging rhythm with the drums and bass. Oh, I love it. I heard an urban legend that this song was supposedly also about the Green River Killer, which was operating in the in and around the Seattle area at that time. And another weird thing, this is another it's not quite as weird as seven eight, but most of this song is written in six four time, which again is kind of an unconventional pr- approach. That sounds really cool. I wish I I knew what you guys were talking about when you say things like that. So it's just instead okay. the music phrase instead of one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, then it starts over. That's it. It's okay. a it's a music geek thing. Okay. As he said, when the drummer calls it off, he's not gonna go one, two, three, four. He's gonna go one, two, three, four, five, six. And that's how you jump in. Okay. Awesome. So moving on. He doesn't blow me away. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> Learning something new every day. Song number three on the album is a song called Rain When I Die. Another six four time, isn't it? Golly. Verse, yeah, the verses are definitely in six four. Again, trying something a little unconventional. All right. So the lyrics to this one were written by both Jerry Cantrell and Lane Staley about their respective girlfriends. All of the band is listed as writers on this song. Did she call my name? Throw back to our Duran Duran Rio album where Jason didn't know what a female orgasm sounded like. <laughs> Lies. Quit spreading lies here. (laughs) That's all I've got on that. That's all I've got. I like this one as well. I like the way it starts off. It's kind of chaotic and disjointed. Little guitar squeaks and drum beats. But when it locks in and that groove kicks off, uh, I love this one too. I love the vocals on this one. He's really, really leaning on that edgy, gravelly rock voice that he's got. Just sounds so great on this song. The growl on Did She Call My Name is intoxicating. I, I can tell you, I start listening to this song, I'm like, okay, this is pretty good, pretty good. But when he hits Did She Call My Name, I'm like, oh, brother, this yep. is freaking killer. And we haven't talked about one of the big musical strong points of Alice in Chains are the vocals. Whenever Jerry and Lane start harmonizing, it adds so much to these songs. Such a unique voice. It really is different. 
And, and Jerry's is a much drier, cleaner voice, but the blend that they have, the blend of their voices is unmistakable and hauntingly beautiful. I feel like this one could have been very successful as a single. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah, the, we we have not had a bad song yet. They released, what, five singles off this album? I think it very easily could have been seven or eight. So. Yep, for sure. All right. Song number four on the album is a song called Down in a Hole. exemplifies what I think is one of the greatest attributes that Jerry Cantrell has, and that is his ability to mix acoustic guitar with heavy, hard, rocking electric guitar. He does such a fantastic... He may be the best at that mix-up, and this song exemplifies it. It is so sweet and melodic as it starts off, and then when that chorus comes in... Guitars drop, just rocks your balls off, and then right back into the sweet melodic acoustic guitar. Love, love, love it. The dynamics in this song are amazing. It's hard to believe that Jerry Cantrell originally didn't even want to present it to the band. He thought it was too soft and sappy. <laughs> yeah, we talked about that when I think James Hetfield of Metallica didn't want to bring Nothing Else Matters to the band because he was worried about that being too soft. Because they were brave enough to do it, you end up with these two killer power rock ballads. Metallica. We may have to talk about those guys later. <laughs> I think we will. I'm sure we will, actually. This was the fifth and last single released from this album, released August 3rd of 1993. So this song was written by Jerry Cantrell about his longtime girlfriend, Courtney Clark. And he said, the song is in my top three, personally. It is to my long time love. It is the reality of my life, the path that I've chosen. And in a weird way, it kind of foretold where we are right now. It's hard for us both to understand that this life is not conducive to much success with long-term relationships. But you can tell he had deep, deep feelings for this girl and it comes through in that song well it's interesting if you look at the lyrics now looking back at what happened to lane you can almost interpret them in another way because it almost sounds like lane is singing about his own condition unable to get out from under the drugs but it's a beautiful song either way the video is shot kind of in the california desert and to me it looks like that scene in terminator 2 when sarah connor they go to her special friend in the desert who's got that stockpile of guns underneath the uh, the sand there flashback to our terminator 2 episode <laughs> there you go I was waiting for the plug. <laughs> Great song. Love this song. Beautiful. Reached number 10 on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Chart. I remember reading one of the stories about the production of this album, saying a lot of the songs, Lane did what they call stacking his vocals. He would record one vocal part, 
and then change it the note just enough to make it harmonize with it and just like sometimes multiple tracks and he said he was so good at doing that he could always make each vocal take a little different from the other one but they would all stack so well and harmonize together this is the first time we see mike inez in one of the videos yeah they had to fire mike star because mike was jockeying for monetary reasons trying to write more of the songs and he was scalping those van halen tickets we talked about and he was blitzed out of his mind and he was having major drug problems and so they fired mike star yeah i mean their their take on it was he wanted to spend more time at home and not was not focused on the band but he just said that was bull it kicked me out because i was on drugs you know this song has been covered several times ryan adams is kind of an americana guy covered it a few years back and it's very good but it was also covered by bronson arroyo i love that that is yeah, a that was little nugget right there fact. little old red sox pitcher from their star years back in the early 2000s in an album and this is one of the songs he covered bronson arroyo with the high leg kick when pitching you guys are getting excited about the baseball cover and i have never heard of the ryan adams cover and i absolutely <laughs> love ryan adams oh, you, you will love this one d i promise it's fantastic oh man I'll, yeah ryan adams one of my favorites i gotta check that out how about brian adams covering it dude why you gotta go there <laughs> why do you have to do that forget ryan adams let's go brian adams shut up <laughs> All right. Great song. We all love it. All right. Hit stop on your tape player. Kick it out. Flip it over for side two. Starting off with a song called Sick Man. Love it. it starts off with this heavy tribal feel sean kenny uses a lot of course um the producer i think carlstrom was his name said that they intentionally wanted the song to speed up as it went along but sean kenny didn't play to a click track or a metronome he just went in and started bashing so they had to edit out he said that that jordan and carlstrom spent a long time editing out like about a measure and a half of that cut and paste cut and paste because they didn't have all the fancy grid mapping and pro tools we have now so it was a lot more complicated back then that's interesting if you describe it as tribal when i hear it i'm thinking industrial i'm thinking like nine inch nails there's so much going on with it so fast that to me it's got the industrial rock sound to it and i'm a huge industrial fan so i won't even bother arguing with you on that one I think you're <laughs> absolutely right well and the song came together because lane went to jerry and said, listen, man, I want you to write me the sickest tune, the sickest, darkest, and heaviest thing you can write. And that's how this song came to be. And it's obviously super heavy. Like I said, feels industrial. The, the beat is extremely fast. And you get this very heavy guitar and bass coming in to follow it. His lyrics are strong and in your face and then it's got this break in it where it breaks down here it is right here now as you listen to this i want you to jason i want you to think back to our motley crew episode dr feelgood where we talked about how they had a song that sounded exactly like a beatles song the beatles song was called she's so heavy yeah we listen to she's so heavy right now Okay, now listen to the breakdown in Sick Man. 
Interesting. Okay. I think you're onto something there. I do hear it, D. That it, you, you nailed it. Now, I wouldn't have thought that on my own, but what, was the, Motley, out, what was the Motley Crue song? It's called Slice of Your Pie off of Dr. Oh, nice. Feelgood. Nice. The one thing I've got on this one, you ready for this? Yep. This was written by Lane while he was in rehab. Hey, I do have one. I do actually have one other thing on this one. Okay. Yeah. Yep. This was the song they were working on when the LA riot started and they had to shut down production and get out of town. And they spend four or five days up in the Joshua Tree Desert and then wait for it to all die down. Yep, that's exactly right. Remember what D said earlier, though. This does kick off side two, which is almost a narrative about how the drug use started out as something he's playing around with, enjoying, and then gradually degenerates into a living hell. Before we get to that living hell, we got to talk about the next song on the album. So the second song on side two is my favorite song on the entire album. It's called Rooster. don't stop it we'll listen to every song all the way through so that i mean yeah this this song is what caused me to buy this album this album has an anthem this is it yeah 100 percent. so boggy depot boggy freaking depot boggy depot is a town in oklahoma in what is now atoka county it was a part of the indian territory and was a significant trading city it's not just a ghost town like there's nothing left but a sign and Boggy Depot is where Jerry Cantrell Sr. was born and raised. And when you watch the video to Rooster and you see them hunting out in the woods, it's over there in Atoka County, Oklahoma. Yep. That was also the name of Jerry Cantrell's first solo album. There you okay. go. Yep. Boggy exactly Depot. Right. This song is spectacular. This was huge summer of 93. One of the other songs that summer that was huge is Plush by Stone Temple Pilots, which we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks. I love this song. It's so beautiful. And it's about his dad in Vietnam. Yeah. I had mentioned in our last episode that his first memory was at three years old when his dad came home from two tours in Vietnam. And then four years after after that, his parents had gotten divorced and moved away, and he did not have a close relationship with his dad. And this was largely because of his experience in Vietnam that just became hard to get along in life after that. Out of his frustration, he decided, I'm going to try to think about this from his perspective. And he started thinking about what it would have been like to go through the Vietnam War to see your buddies die in your hands. that point the song just kind of came out of it it's like i never talked to my dad about this you know but as is typical with most vietnam vets they don't talk about the war and so he wrote this song from the perspective of his dad without any input from his dad and ultimately his dad saw him jerry senior saw him perform only one show but when this song started playing he could see his dad back by the soundboard watching and at the end of the song his dad was holding his big stetson cowboy hat up in the air and the tears were streaming down his face love it fantastic. I remember reading while they were shooting the video for it, the producer actually wanted to go to the, talk to his dad. So his dad just started opening up and talking to the producer and telling things about his experience in Nam that he never mentioned to Jerry or anybody else. 
So that was just really eye-opening to Jerry. Yeah, the, as we said, they filmed this in Atoka. This was Jerry's brother's property that they filmed these parts on. He was inside a house when he was given that interview. And in the video, in the extended version of the video, you have a little bit of that interview that happens. And that's Jerry's dad talking. And there is a part toward the end of the, the rather short statement where he said it was a weird thing. It was a sad thing. I just wouldn't want to have anybody else go through that. And then he stops, but the camera stays on him and you can kind of see him searching. It's like the memories are starting to pour in and you can see him pulling back those tears, this big old tough cowboy from Oklahoma trying to make it through this moment where he's remembering everything that he had to go through. And it is, it's heartbreaking when you know the background. Yep. I've got a couple of stories on this. Okay. I find these two at least lighthearted. All right. Yeah. So they're in L.A., they're recording the album, they're out late partying every night. Like we said, they're at Tropicana half the time. But one day, they're in the studio, and all the instruments are ready to go. Lane's there, everyone's there, ready to go, but there's no Sean. Can't find Sean. Where's Sean? And if Lane's there, you better be ready, because Lane, I mean... A <laughs> little bit hit or miss. A little bit hit or miss, that's exactly right. So the producer was mad, and he just finally just said, that's it. We're calling it a day. Everybody go home. Well, at that exact moment, Sean comes flying in the door and his hair is like nappy and matted from the night before. And he smells like beer. And, you know, he's obviously been out partying. He's got some glitter on his face. <laughs> <laughs> he smells like smoke and perfume. And he's like, no, 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 I'm ready. I'm there. I mean, let's do this, you know? And they're like, nope, we've already called it. Just freaking go home. We'll try again tomorrow. And he's like, I tell you what, just let me play one song. And so he's like, "Fine, we'll do one song." And so they go, they go through Rooster, and that is the drum track that you have from that night of partying from Sean. And it's a perfect drum track, even with the little military roll type part in the middle. This feels like he worked a lot of long time putting that together instead of just showing up semi drunk and hitting play. There you go. It's fantastic. This was one of the songs that they had demoed whenever they were recording wood for the single soundtrack, but it's not. They didn't use that demo they obviously they re-recorded the whole thing jerry said he felt like they had captured something on the demo that they did not quite get in the song but i can't even see how that's possible as awesome as this song is. here's my other story with this you ready for this yeah the producer's working on the mix for rooster and lane's there one night and he's got a guy with him and the producer clearly knows it's a drug dealer why would you think that well you know <laughs> so he's like well lane's here Hey, Lane, come in here, and I want to play a mix of Rooster for you and see what you think. So Lane's like, all right. And so him and his friend come in there, and he's playing the mix, and he stops it, and he says, well, what do you think? And before Lane can even speak, his drug dealer buddy goes, I think you should... And Lane turns around to him and says, shut up. And before Lane can even do anything, Dave Jordan is in that guy's face going, who the F are you? What the F are you doing here? Get out of my studio and don't ever come back. And then he turns to Lane and says, don't bring these scumbags in here. We're working. I'm a professional. You're a professional. Get these guys out of here. And it's just one of those moments that, you know, the recording of this album had. Yeah, I read an interview with Jordan's later where they asked him about that. And he said Lane got mad at him sometimes because he would tell Lane that he was high and quit showing up high i was paid to record the album not to be lane's best friend yeah that's right <laughs> this is the last video to feature mike star by the way this is the fourth single released march 15th 1993 and for me this is just huge summer of 93 he was in butthead love this song as well gentlemen my name is sergeant dick leakey some call me the rooster wah, 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 wah. yeah they come to snuff the rooster <laughs> <laughs> war song Cool. Yeah.
Beavis and Butthead were the best back in the day, man. All right, are we done with that one? I hate to be. Beautiful song. Yep. Love it. Love it. Top notch. Best song on the album. All right, next song on the album is a song called Junkhead. Okay, this is when you start to lose me a little bit. We're sliding into the drug culture. This is where I start to bail just a little bit. We talked earlier about how several of these songs chart the evolution of someone turning into a serious junkie, and this clearly is an early stage in that. But I remember reading where Carlstrom, one of the engineers, said that he was only recently sober, and he was kind of worried about being around the sheer intensity of all these dark lyrics about drug abuse. The chorus that is repeated over and over is, what's my drug of choice? But what have you got? I don't go broke and I do it a lot. This is the beginning of the I can do whatever I want and I'm bulletproof stage of doing drugs. And if you think this is glorifying it, then you're right. It's just the you got to remember to listen to the rest of the songs on the album. Staley said he, he's like, the last thing I wanted was for people to think I was trying to glorify drugs, but I would have guys come up to me after a show and they would like give me the thumbs up and say, I'm high and... That's the last thing I wanted. Jerry said in an interview, I think it was in 2013, that it was more of a cautionary intent. Said it was We said it was more of a warning than anything else, rather than, hey, come and check this out. It's great. We were talking about what was going on with us at the time. So I don't know what the time, but later on, he's gone back and said that, look, we didn't mean this to encourage this sort of behavior. We meant it as a warning. Yeah, so this is the first song on that five-song run, that, that story arc that Jerry Cantrell talks about. Junkhead, Dirt, Godsmack, Hate to Feel, and Angry Chair. So this is the euphoria before the crash and before death. So this takes us on to song number three on side two, title track for the CD or tape, if you will, Dirt. Okay. This is definitely bringing back the wah that we had from Man in a Box. Wow. Yeah, right? A <laughs> uh, little Bon Jovi tribute way back again. Here we go. Nice. I, I, I was listening to this today. It's the first time. I mean, I've heard this song I don't know how many times, but for the first time today I was listening to it, I was like, this sounds like a Metallica song. It's not exactly the Metallica song, but it's pretty close. And so I turned on, and we'll play it for you here, Wherever I may roam, and if you listen to the second 20 seconds of this song, sounds like maybe they borrowed it. Okay. Well, these guys definitely had an interesting relationship with Metallica. <laughs> yeah, at one point they were supposed to open for Metallica and the tour, yep. but then they also got offered to do soundtrack work on Last Action Hero. They picked Last Action Hero. I, I don't know if that was a good choice or not, but hey, they were in LA instead of getting stuff thrown on them in a concert or whatever. They bowed out the day before the tour. That's ah, a little douchey. It's a little douchey to do that. And so in response, Metallica came out and they started mock playing Man in a Box. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were making 
making motions toward their arms like they were shooting up heroin because they were frustrated at these guys. And the crowd started throwing beer bottles at Metallica because they were pissed at them being judgmental jackasses. <laughs> I think they all ultimately all made up. I think a couple of these guys, Jerry Cantrell and I think Sean Kenny, have both worked on Metallica stuff since then. But then even after I mentioned to you guys today that I thought that this is kind of a, a take on the rift from wherever my may roam, which came out year before, came out in It 91. totally is. A hundred percent it is. And then James pointed out that Metallica probably did the same thing a little bit later on. You know, Metallica, every now and then they've been accused of borrowing a riff, but hell, which musician hasn't? Right. You know, we had the whole situation with Inner Sandman and the riff from the old Excel song. I don't know why you weren't on this text thread, but you texted us today saying, hey guys, I think this sounds a lot like Wherever I May Roam. Uh-huh. I texted James, what, two nights ago? Several days uh-huh. ago, yeah. I'm like, James, this song sounds a lot like Wherever I May Roam. Get the heck out. No, it's totally true. Oh, wow. So when I texted you, are like, why are you saying what I already said? <laughs> I was like, I, so I texted him, and I'm like, D's on the party, too. So, wow. yeah, absolutely. I think it's totally exactly like wherever I may roam. That's funny. Yeah, so James, yeah, when I texted that, James said, also listen to the beginning and end of Until It Sleeps, which is off of Fuel. Is that the name of the album? It was like Load or Reload. Load, load. that's right. Fuel was on Load. But uh, he said... Listen to the beginning and end of Until It Sleeps and then listen to Angry Chair and there's definitely some crossover. And so yeah, they borrow from each other. That's what you do. You don't you know, good artists create, great artists steal. There you go. Lane Staley wrote this song to a quote certain person who basically buried my ass. I don't know what that means either, but okay then. There you go. Done with this one? Good song. I like it. It's yeah, okay. It's a heavy song and Lane's vocals are on point and really appropriate. This Okay. Next song on the album is a song called Godsmack. Wow, 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 wow. It's kind of interesting to me. This one, I mean, shockingly, another song about heroin. But this is a little more dancey. Like, this is more like a club music kind of, which is weird for me to hear from Alice in Chains. It's not that it's bad. It's just it doesn't seem to fit for me I, I like it i still listen to it it's it, it's not a bad song it's just kind of odd it just seems odd to me that they're writing this godsmack song and have this very dancey kind of style to it. The, the lyrics and the music clearly don't match up and that may have been intentional i mean talking about what smack is god's name to some there's clearly someone getting deeper and deeper in the depths of their addiction as they continue their progress down the dark road lane was on obviously Godsmack the band came along later on and they got their name from this song. Any song that has Lane on vocals and Jerry Cantrell on guitar is going to be two steps ahead. But this one doesn't really do it for me. So your sickness weighs a ton? This is not my drug of choice. <laughs> Alright, All right, well then let's move on, shall we? Yes. Do we want to talk about the intro? The Iron Gland? Do we want to talk about the Iron Gland? I am Iron Gland. 
Yeah, so there is, uh, it's just untitled, on. depending on which release you got, it's untitled on some, and I think it was mistitled when they put it on Apple Music as Iron Man, which, I mean, obviously they're borrowing from Black Sabbath. We discussed how they were a huge influence, but this is a 43-second song called Iron Gland, developed out of one of Jerry Cantrell's guitar riffs that everyone else in the band hated. It annoyed the crap out of everybody. So he's like, okay, fine. I want to just put it on an album and then I will never play it again. And there you go. That's what they you brought get. in Tom Araya from Slayer just to do the I am Iron Gland part. And they had to take Tom and rush out to Joshua Tree because people were looting and murdering. I kind of like the uh, the red rum stuff at the very end. <laughs> at the end. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that brings us to the next song called Hate to Feel. hate this song but i also don't love it this one is he's doing something with his guitar i think it's like an effect pedal where it plays obviously the note that he's playing and then like a, a sixth step down from that note which gives it that kind of weird sound that each of the notes that he plays has obviously flows smoothly from that weird iron gland thing that we had right before it i don't know how that song got messed up in the placement when they originally pressed this album so it wasn't they it wasn't one that followed before but all of that aside, this is one that I could leave off the album and never miss it. I think one of the highlights of this song is it's, you know, Lane actually wrote two songs for this album. He came when they were recording. This is one of the two that he wrote himself. But yeah, I mean, other than getting steadily darker and darker down the junkie trail, this is the closest, one of the closest this album has to a skipper for me as well. Yeah. yeah. This is a skipper for me as well. Yeah, this one and Angry Chair, composed completely by Lane Staley and on the both of them, he plays guitar, which Jerry Cantrell said I was, he was the one that encouraged me to sing and complimented me on my singing when I did. And I think he knocked it out of the park with these songs and did wonderful on the guitar. So when he brought it in, he had sort of the basis of it, but no lyrics yet. Hmm. And so he wrote the lyrics while they were recording the album. We've got the cheerful lyrics. Like, what's he say? Used to be curious. Now the blank is sustenance. More songs about drugs. Okay, we done with this one? Yeah. Flush that one down the toilet before the cops get here. <laughs> Let's get rid of this one and move on to the next Lane Staley song, Angry Chair. Opposition to that last song, Lane Staley brings it home with this one. I yeah. love this song. This is fantastic. And it's funny to me that it's a song about a toilet. <laughs> what? <laughs> so the first verse of the song is sitting on an angry chair, angry walls that steal the air, stomach hurts, and I don't care. When you do heroin, you lose your appetite. But what comes along with that is stomach pains. You end up sitting on the toilet because of your stomach pains. And what he's saying here is, I'm sitting on the toilet. I'm angry because I can't poop. My stomach hurts, but I don't care. <laughs> 
See, I heard that this song was written about him having that special chair when he got in trouble when he was a little kid. <laughs> the timeout chair. The timeout chair. <laughs> and he had to sit and look at a mirror of himself like, look at that bad kid right there. Oh, my God. That's what, that's what I heard as well. I kind of yes. like these explanation. Is, I like <laughs> it too. Oh, my God. Maybe there's a mirror in his bathroom. Yeah, of course there's a mirror in his bathroom. <laughs> well, verse two starts off with candles red. I have a pair. It's talking about cooking heroin. Yeah. I'm pretty Wait. sure this song is a continuing story about heroin. It, it definitely is. It definitely is. This was the third single released December 6, 1992. Lane Staley wrote this one as well. This is dense, scary, dark. But then they break into that really cool, melodious part. I mean... The I don't mind part? Yeah. He's got a knack for doing that. Yeah. I don't mind. I don't mind. It's Lost a, my mind. Can't find it anywhere. I don't mind. There's some dark beauty here. Yeah. This has one of my favorite Cantrell solos. Oh, the, the guitar song. solo is killer on this one. It's amazing. Let's listen to this real quick. Freaking awesome. Mind-blowing. By the way, right before the guitar solo, he says, I'm a dull boy, work all day, so I'm strung out anyway. I don't think this is a kid in time. Uh, hey, I'm just... The internets are telling me that this is a kid in time. Out. what you read, That's huh? a, Yes. All right. Yeah. Hey, the music video on this has one of those weird night monkeys that you're seeing with the giant eyeballs, <laughs> and it's on his shoulder, and it's hanging. It's It was actually... There's a monkey on his back? There is a monkey... On his back. Yeah, obviously this song is about a little boy who's in timeout. There's no question. <laughs> and this is the one where I really, I may be wrong, but I do think Laura Zulrich heard this and used some of the intro, the kind of drum part, when they recorded Until It Sleeps a few years later. Hey, one of the things I wanted to throw in on Metallica, we brushed up with Metallica just a minute ago. The guys from Metallica were in the audience the night that Allison Chains did the Unplugged show. <laughs> They was were this there. The friends don't let friends get haircuts. Yes, that friends was, don't was, let friends get friends. Friends haircuts. haircuts. That's like right. The TV show. Oh, <laughs> so Metallica had just cut their hair, and Mike Inez wrote on the front of his guitar, "Friends don't let friends get friends haircuts." So they, these guys were friends. I, I know, in particular, Jerry Cantrell is still very close with Lars. Apparently, he also still goes out to Cabo Wabo for Sammy Hagar's birthday parties. I love it. Jerry's a cool dude. Yeah, good old boy. Yep. Okay. I, I swear I read that he used to go hunting with Hetfield. So probably so. Which and also if... sounds like a great TV show. <laughs> hunting with Hetfield. Let's make that happen. <laughs> okay. Now that brings us to the last song on the album. A song that was on the single soundtrack. This song is called Wood. They're ending strong on this one, boys. Man, this is not this is not the throwaway. Let's stick it on at the last minute. Sound. This is fantastic. Yeah, it's yeah. one of my favorite songs on the album. I, I agree. Get it enough. So the title of the song is Wood? Question mark as in W O U L D. But this song was written by Jerry Cantrell as a tribute to his friend 
Andrew Wood from Mother Love Bone, who passed away from heroin overdose in 1990. And it's also directed towards those judgmental sons of bees that look down upon folks who are dealing with the heroin addictions and don't know how to deal with it properly. Yeah, this was the first single, like we said, from the single soundtrack released June 30th, 1992. And if Rooster is not your favorite song, it's probably this song. Those are the two best songs in the album, in my opinion. Huge chorus, haunting tone, dark and beautiful. Another song about drug addiction. Andrew Wood had a tragic life and it ended tragically, but he inspired some amazing music. Besides this, you know, we had the Temple of the Dog album with Chris Cornell and some of the Pearl Jam guys. Beautiful, sad music. And it's all, once again, inspired by Wood's death. During the making of this video, they flew to Seattle for three days. And while they're in the middle of the video shoot, Lane goes to the video director and says, I need to go home. And he's like, what? He's like, I have to go get some aspirin. And I have to feed my cat. So he left in the middle of the video shoot to, you know, feed his cat, which is the story we're going with. He had a cat. He did have a cat. His cat's name was Sadie. His cat's name was Sadie. And I'm sure that was the only thing he did when he got home. Right. Yeah, he was probably drug sick and needed something to get him unsick. The director of that video, by the way, we've talked about before. Yeah, who is it? Yeah, it's Josh Taft. Okay. Now, Josh was co-director with Cameron Crowe on this video, right? You know, of course, Cameron Crowe having singles is going to come in to take part in the direction of the video. But Josh Taft also directed videos for Stone Temple Pilots, including Sex Type Thing, Plush, and Lady Picture Show, which we will be talking about on our next episode. But we talked about him in the past because he was the guy who recorded the live performance of Alive by Pearl Jam that if you listen to the extended video, at some point, Eddie Vedder goes, turn the lights off. Yes. This is a rock concert, not a movie, Josh. That's Josh Taft, <laughs> who directed videos for Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilots, who we will cover next week, and, of course, Pearl Jam. Throwback to that episode, which we love. I forgot about that. That's a great story. Freaking Josh rock <laughs> video. Just a fantastic way to cap off the album. What you mentioned, Jason, about them bleeding, blending this darkness and beauty, I think it's hard to find a better example of it than this song. It's got such an ominous tone with that bass intro at the beginning, but then when it explodes in that chorus, there's almost, I hate to say optimism, but there's almost a sense of there's something positive about the chorus. Dark, haunting, and beautiful. And, and my, my band, actually, we still play this song. And as soon as our bass player starts that intro, you can hear people all around going, because oh, people still love this song. Even 30 years later, it still goes over well. I guess that's a testament to its power. Super strong album. I mean, not a miss on side one. Side one is epic. Yeah, You got one or two skippers on side two, but mostly great stuff throughout. Definitely a fantastic album. Oh, the left off Mike Starr song. I know. Fear the Voices. I really wanted that one on there and they fought him all the way and it, it, they did not include it, but it is in their box set if you want to hear it. I know we're kind of put a, putting a cap on this, but they had to cancel one of the shows on the Dirt Tour mid-performance because Lane would drop the mic and leave and go get high in the middle of the concert. And so the manager had to come out and say, that's it. We're not finishing this concert. 
So they actually called off a concert in the middle of the show. Lane's life story, it's a tragedy. The man had so much talent, was such an amazing vocalist. I mean, people have been trying to replicate his voice for years in bands like Godsmack and other places. Yep. But they lacked that certain timber he had, that certain feeling that came with it. Yeah, his vocals are amazing. Amazing. So have you got some info on how this album performed upon release? Yeah, D. So this album peaked at number six on the Billboard 200, five times platinum, as we said, just hit that five million mark in August of 2022. You know what? If I'm just picking my own favorites here, I wouldn't put it at the top. I would put the Unplugged album at the top. Well, we need to talk about the Unplugged album for just a second. So April 10th, 1996, they came back after having not performed together because of all of Lane's problems. They hadn't performed together in two and a half years. And you can tell when you watch the MTV Unplugged, he's got his sunglasses on, he's there, he's coherent, he's performing the songs and all of that. But at some point he takes those glasses off. look in his eyes and he has piercing entrancing eyes but there's a sadness there that you can see a life that is about to be extinguished he can barely sit on the stool but they somehow against all odds like sean kenny even said we can't even get through rehearsals like we may crash and burn on this deal and somehow they pulled off the impossible and that night was an epic performance maybe their best ever as alice chains his his vocals are perfection throughout the whole thing, which is saying something because when you get a regular album, you have the opportunity to re-record, re-record, and re-record, and they did this in front of an audience. It was an amazing, amazing performance, and four months later, he would do his very last performance. Kansas City, Missouri, touring with Kiss. From then on, he was out of public spotlight, never to perform live again. It says something about a band's music when it translates so well into a different format. For these songs, which are recorded, most of them with the heavy distorted guitars and the pounding drums, to hear them in this unplugged acoustic format and realizing how much creativity and talent these guys had and how great those songs still sound, I think that's a reason why Alice in Chains is still such a beloved band today. Yeah. They just had the songs. When they started their first song that night, that song was called Nutshell. People were crying. First of oh. all, they're, they're amazed that they're even there. And then to pull off that performance, it's just tear-jerking. It is truly an amazing album. It's an amazing performance. It's just, I, I could listen to it over and over again and never get tired of it. So just a little over three months after Lane's last live performance on October 29th, 1996, his former fiance that we talked about before, Demery Perot, died of a drug overdose. He got placed on a 24-hour suicide watch. They quoted a friend of his saying he was taking her death extremely badly and was in a deep depression. Well, if you started from where he was, 
you know, he can't even do a live performance anymore and say he went down drastically from there. Right. That's pretty freaking low. Well, you can tell. I mean, he normally weighs about 170 pounds. I mean, he's a thin guy anyway. But at that MTV Unplugged performance, mm -hmm. I bet he's 125 pounds. Yeah. And when he died, he was around 90 pounds. And he's like six foot tall. I know. Get this. Okay, so... It's estimated that he was spending between $250 and $400 a day on crack and heroin. Now, he went on a camping trip with some friends to try and go cold turkey. Didn't bring anything with him. Went camping in the woods. There's no way I can get drugs here. Well, he started to get dope sick, and so they had to go back into town. When they went back into town, they went to Safeway to get some groceries. And in the parking lot of the Safeway, there's a bunch of teenagers just kind of at a little impromptu party in the back parking lot of the Safeway. Well, they were blaring No Excuses, the Alice in Chains song. And they pulled up, he rolled down the window, and he's dope sick. Yeah. And he still belted out the perfect version of No Excuses. freaking lane staley right there wow we can't forget that he he did a couple side projects mike mccready invited him to be a part of mad season because he was in hopes that hey maybe if we surround him with musicians that are all clean and sober that that will help him get clean and sober unfortunately it didn't work fortunately it gave us the mad season album which is fantastic but he also you played one for me. I had forgotten that this was on there, but on the Faculty soundtrack, that terrible high school alien movie from 1999, there is a remake of The Wall, and Lane Staley is singing that. His voice is there, but his enunciation is awful. Yeah, if you, we can listen to it here. We don't need no Yeah, and you can, yeah, you're totally right. You can hear he's probably missing some teeth. He doesn't have, he, he doesn't have any teeth at this point. Yeah. Actually, Allison Chains got together and recorded two songs for their box set. They had two days because they were recording around Offspring, who's recording their album. But Offspring agreed to give them two days to come in and record. Everybody showed up and recorded their parts, but they could not get Lane in the studio. Okay. When he finally showed up, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. He was super thin, scary thin. So he came up, screwed around, and then decided that he had to go. He couldn't stay. And they actually had to like, bring the recording to him to get his vocals for those last two songs. Those songs are called Get Born Again and Died. And then on April 4th of 2002, Mike Starr visited Lane at his apartment, which it's very Howard Hughes-like. He had this apartment. Nobody ever really saw him. He would go to the comic book store and Toys R Us 
Otherwise, he stayed locked away in his apartment. Well, Mike Starr was actually visiting him, and Lane was chastising him for being addicted to pills. And Mike's like, what the heck are you talking about, dude? Look at you, you know? I'm not high. You're high. (laughs) In fact, he threatened Lane. He said, I might just call 911. How about that? And Lane said, if you do, I'll never talk to you again. Mike stormed out, and on his way out, Lane said, not like this, man. Don't let it in like this. And it's estimated that he died the next day. Yeah. The weird part about that that made the hair, what little there is, stand up on the back of my neck is that Mike Starr said that when he was talking to Lane that night, Lane, they were watching some show about ghosts or seances or reincarnations. And Lane said that Dimery was here last night. Tragic. Tragic story. April 5th, 2002, Lane Staley overdosed on a speedball at the age of 34. How much music did we miss out on because he could not break free of this addiction? Yeah. The bank called his parents because there had been no financial transactions for two weeks. Um, He had people who he normally would have called who hadn't heard from him in the two weeks. So his mother and his stepdad went to his apartment, couldn't get in, which was not atypical. What happened was she heard that cat Sadie meowing and she said, Sadie's normally a very quiet cat. This sounded like a cat in distress. And so it was that that caused them to call 911 and have the paramedics come out and break the door down to find it. Hard to imagine someone who just a few years earlier had been one of the world's most legendary rock stars just dying by himself alone and laying there for two weeks. Yeah. Just couldn't break free. Mark Lanigan, who's from the Screaming Trees, said he never recovered from Demery's death. After that, I don't think he wanted to go on. When they had his memorial service, Chris Cornell was joined by Anne and Nancy Wilson from Heart, and they sang a rendition of the Rolling Stones' Wild Horses. Soon after Lane passed away, Jerry Cantrell released a solo album he'd been working on during the hiatus. It was called Degradation Trip, and it was Jerry dealing with his own addictions. The rest of the guys in the band were having their own problems. But if you listen to a lot of those songs, are clearly discussing his love-hate relationship with Lane. And the fact that it was released so soon after his death makes it, I don't know, man, it's tough to listen to. It's a beautiful album great music but it's just tough to listen to great band great album important band of the 90s next week we're going to talk about stone temple pilots and we will go track by track through their album core core was released on the same day september 29th 1992, same day as Dirt. And to give you a little a little hint, I have a dear close friend who is the biggest Alice in Chains fan I've ever met in my life. Her firstborn child, his middle name is Lane, spelled with a Y. <laughs> that is how important this band was to her. When I told her about this mashup, she said, uh, Core's the better album. And I was like, what? She goes, listen, you know how I feel about Alice in Chains, but Core is the better album. I'll save my take to later on on that one. <laughs> I'm not saying I share her opinion. I'm just saying there's a definite contention in this particular matchup. 
All right. Well, we will see you guys back here next week. Yeah, be sure and hit that follow button on your podcast app so that you get updated automatically when that next episode comes out. We will talk to you guys then. Thank you so much for joining us. James, thank you for coming in and going through the history and the track by track with us on this album. Loved your takes. Can't wait to do this again with you soon. Well, thanks for letting me be the man in the Zoom box, guys. I appreciated it. Schneck. Right. Schneck. Schneck? I don't know. Okay.